Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 85 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Out of the Closet, an interview with Sarah Hot. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Sarah Hot. Sarah Hot is a 29-year-old social media influencer, blogger, and digital marketing manager from Northern Virginia. Ms. Hot was bitten by a tick many times during her childhood, but she didn't start to experience the symptoms of a tick disease until later in life. In the fall of 2016, Ms. Hot was plagued by flu-like symptoms, including a high fever. She continuously got worse over the course of a weekend, but the ER couldn't determine why. She finally went to a walk-in medical clinic where they discovered that her liver was swollen and her gallbladder had almost stopped functioning. From there, Ms. Hott went to some of the best doctors in the world at Johns Hopkins University. None of them could figure out what was wrong with her. Finally, she went to the Jemzik Clinic in 2018, where Dr. Joseph Jemzik clinically diagnosed her with Lyme disease. Ms. Hott was in such a terrible state by the time that she was diagnosed that she couldn't speak properly or remember simple words. She started treatment with oral antibiotics, which eventually progressed to being administered via an IV port, where she saw the most progress. Lyme gave Ms. Hot a new identity. She is stronger because of it and hopes to be an example and an inspiration to others who are battling through their own struggles. Hi, Sarah Hot, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Could you share with our audience how old you are and where you live? Sure. Yeah, I'm 29 years old, and I live in Northern Virginia, about 30 minutes outside of D.C. Are you currently employed? I'm actually just about to join the workforce again after a few years hiatus, so I will be starting February 18th. Oh, congratulations. So your healing yes, journey you. has gotten you to a point where you can finally go back to work. Yes, I'll be starting part-time, um, actually at my old job, the one I had to quit before this whole fiasco started. So um, they're, they're actually giving me my old job back. So I'll be, again, starting part-time. And um, I'm so excited. They've really worked with me. So I just can't wait to get back on the grind. So what type of work generally do you do? I went to school. I was actually an English major, but I ended up getting a marketing job. And I became the digital marketing manager at this company, um, near close, kind of close to where I live. And again, everything in the digital world, as well as print. And I love marketing, so and I love writing, so it was a really good fit for me. What is your family status? My family status, I grew up very, I would say very privileged. I, we grew up on 32 acres, so I was always outside, big house. It was the type of environment where everybody would want to come over to my house. It was that kind of thing. And um, my parents, my dad actually owns a few businesses, and my mom uh, used to work for, she used to work for the government, the Pentagon, and then she ended up being able to stay home. I have two older brothers, so it was us and my mother at home, and we traveled every summer. It was kind of going overseas. Our parents really, my dad's Persian, so he really wanted us to um, kind of experience what the rest of the world looks like and be really cultured and, and understand kind of what we have here versus where, you know, what, what other people have and, and to really get a better understanding, kind of be little adults when we were little people. <laughs> and what is your current family status? Yes. Yeah, so um, I had a longtime boyfriend and we ended up getting actually engaged during my Lyme process um, and as well as married. We've been married. It'll be three years in May. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I know he's a tough cookie to stand with me. <laughs> and, and we would like to explore with you what you and he were able to do so that you could get through your Lyme journey together and still have a romantic relationship. That's one of the challenges we see with many of our podcasts that uh, romance seems to often be destroyed by a Lyme journey. Yep. And I actually fully understand it again, being, you know, going through that firsthand experience. I do understand that. And I will not say it's easy, but I will say if you have the right person, it is well worth the work. Um, and you can come out the other side. It is possible. We're living proof. So I, I hope I can encourage people that again, if it's your person, it, it will work out. So Sarah, when did you first begin to show the symptoms of what you now know to be a tick disease? Absolutely. So I was kind of, I was sick off and on through high school after getting um, mono really bad when I was about 16. And my mom always told me I was never the same kind of after that. But I think the 
the symptoms really spiked when I was about 25. I had felt very flu-like. It was a Wednesday, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to take some ibuprofen. I can tell I have a fever. Go to bed. I'll be fine in the morning. Wake up. I was not okay. I had a fever of 104, and I was just incredibly fatigued, bone pain. I mean, joint pain. Everything just ached, and it was one of those aches that I had never felt before. It wasn't your typical viral ache. So we ended up going to the emergency room and they, you know, were, they saw my fever, were trying to cool me down Im immediately. You know, they quarantined me. My, he was my boyfriend at the time. He had to put on, you know, like the little hospital mask and gown. I mean, I, I was, I was off in my own little wing where nobody saw me. And then, you know, they did all kinds of tests because I also had a rash on my um, right shoulder and on my back. And it looked very similar to a meningitis rash. So they did the spinal tap, which, of course, it came back negative. Um, and then, again, it was you have a virus, go home, you'll be fine in a couple of days. Friday rolls around. I'm still not Okay. Um, again, fever is spiking. The symptoms are just getting worse. I felt so run down. I didn't even want to move. I couldn't move my neck. Just everything was killing me. Go back to the emergency room. Same song and dance. I'm being told to just go home. You're fine. You're going to be okay. Just give it a couple days. By Saturday, at this point, I could not move. I could not get out of bed. I had to have my boyfriend carry me from my bed to the bathroom, just to go to the bathroom. Um, I just, I had nothing left in me. And again, it was alarming because I'm feeling so drained, so much in pain, but I can't even voice it because I was even too tired to talk. So, you know, I go to the bathroom and as, you know, gross as this might sound, the, the toilet bowl was filled with blood. And I thought, okay, this is now a serious problem. I need to go somewhere. But, you know, where do you go when the emergency room has turned you away so many times? So we decided to try patient first. We go, again, I'm being carried into patient first. And what is patient first, me, Sarah? Patient first is a walk-in clinic. So it was open on a Saturday. It's open. You don't have to make an appointment. You kind of just go in. It's like the step below emergency room where you can just walk in. So I went in there and again, they, they had me do a urine sample. And at this point they find blood in my urine as well as in my stool. And they, they did some other um, testing, blood testing, and they found that the, my liver enzymes were in the thousands. So I, I couldn't believe what was happening. I'm thinking, what? My, my liver enzymes? So they said, you need to go to the hospital right now. We will call ahead. We will make sure they see you and they won't turn you away this time. So then I get brought into the emergency room. And this time I'm finally taken seriously. I once again had the fever, the ache. And at this point, even my right side was bulging because my liver was so swollen. And then my, my gallbladder uh, almost stopped working completely, so they wanted to do emergency gallbladder surgery. My skin was discolored. My hair was falling out. Um, I couldn't keep any food down. I was either throwing up or having diarrhea. I was getting seizures. I mean, the list goes on and on, and it was symptoms that I never associated with Lyme, and obviously neither did the doctors at the time because they kept me in for a couple of weeks because they had no clue what was going on. And I never got a definitive answer as to what the problem could be. They just told me my symptoms, which obviously I knew, and finally sent me on my way because they said there was nothing else they could do. So now, Sarah, I want to walk back to when you first started showing your symptoms. And you said that mm -hmm. at the age of 16, you, you began to exhibit symptoms and you did have a bout of mononucleosis. Yes. At that time, do you know if you had ever been bitten by a tick? Yeah, actually, I had. So growing up on 32 acres, I was out all the time. I had tick bites, you know, kind of almost on a regular basis, but we didn't know enough about Lyme to really think that that could have been a big problem. And I specifically remember one had bit me on the back of my head and it was underneath my hair and even washing my hair, I, I never felt it. And it was a long time before I remember being able to pull that one out. And I, to this day, I always say that that was the one that did me in. But 
I'm not, we, we don't know for sure. Cause we didn't, you know, take a tick in to get tested. We didn't, we didn't have that information back there, but I do believe it was that tick bite in particular. And what leads you to believe that it was that one particular tick bite and not a series of tick bites where you were infected with various bacteria or viruses or protozoa during the course of many contacts that you've had with ticks? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And I honestly don't have a, you know, tried and true answer that that was definitely it. But that one had stayed on my head and it was a deer tick and it had been on there for Gosh, I don't even know how long it was on there for. But the other ones, they all—they never seemed to be deer ticks. It was, you know, your your typical the the larger ticks. And I never, I didn't see. I never showed um, the bullseye. I didn't have those symptoms. So I, again, I never really knew anything was wrong. So I mean, I can't really say that it was just one. But I've always thought with the neurological symptoms too that I had. I just felt that, you know, that one, I'd, I'd had trouble and I still have that bump there. I mean, it never healed properly and it, it's still red back there. So I've always just thought it was that one, but we don't really have any way of knowing. It could have been many. So now let's talk about, again, the mono that you suffered when you were 16. Was there something right. going on in your life that was stressful or would cause you to believe that your immune system had been weakened and therefore allowed uh, some of these opportunistic bacteria to take off? Or was this something that just surfaced and you just didn't have any reason to believe that your immune system was weakened at that time? That's a really great question. Um, unfortunately, my parents had, had recently gone through a divorce and that was really tough for us. I think I might have taken it the worst. So I was, I was going through a really hard time. And I do think that I know this bacteria, again, when you have these stressful um, events in your life, different stressors, big things that happen, I know that it can kind of activate that bacteria in the body and weaken the immune system. So I do believe that, you know, given that I wasn't doing so well emotionally and mentally during that time, but that this was the perfect storm for my symptoms to just kind of come to the surface and wreak havoc. So how did things go during that event when you were 16, when you were diagnosed with a mono? Did your body ultimately heal and you overcome that over some period of time? Or did you always sort of have this base level of sickness between the ages of 16 and 25? So I did overcome it. I was never back to 100%. So I was really, I was, you know, bedridden, the typical mono symptoms, and I was sleeping all of the time, but I did end up getting better. I would say I got back to 80%, but I was after that always off and on with, you know, tonsillitis. I would get strep. I would get so many different things that it just kept happening and, and everybody would make jokes. Oh, Sarah's always sick. It's not a big deal. But I, when you're not used to being sick all the time, you're like, okay, you know, something, why is this happening? Something is wrong. I'm eating well. I was an athlete. I was working out. I was doing all these things. So it just, it never really added up as to why I was always getting so sick. So how did the physical symptoms that you were suffering between the ages of 16 and 25 affect your life? Meaning, how did it affect your ability to study? How did it affect you socially? Right. So I, I definitely struggled, I think, to keep up. You know, I, at 18, you know, I was going to college and it was really hard. I, I constantly wanted to sleep. And I know teenagers, you know, they love to sleep and I get that, but it was it just always felt like it was more, not that I was trying to be the best at this, believe me, I was not, but I just seemed to sleep so much more than my friends. I would be so tired and, and I just needed to decompress all the time. And, you know, I would see my friends just bouncing back after, you know, pulling an all-nighter to study and that just wasn't me. And then I ended up, you know, I, I, this is again, maybe too much information, but I stopped getting a period and I thought, okay, this is bizarre. And I thought, well, maybe it's, you know, stress, college, it, it, it can wear you down. I get that. But I thought, no, I, I've never heard this happening to any of my friends. And so, and that's when I, I you know, I had gone and um, I, they showed me that I had hypothyroidism. 
so she, you know, my doctor goes, that could be why you're so tired and you're achy and, you know, this, this period thing, let's, let's reevaluate. And so I'm thinking, all right, well, maybe it's just, you know, my hypothyroid, I'll get put on Synthroid and then I'll be fine again. And that still was not the case. So I was always just, again, very tired, worn down my body just felt like it hurt all the time. And I just never could understand why, but you know, you push through because you're a young kid, you think you're invincible. (laughs) Sarah, were there any people in your life who doubted whether or not you were really sick in that window of time between the ages of 16 and 25? Yes, I definitely think my friends, especially they would joke. And I, you know, I know they're trying to, to make light of my situation, but at the same time, it would hurt, you know, because, I, you know, I'm thinking, I didn't ask for this. I'm not trying to be sick. And people blew it off as Sarah's always sick. And she's probably just not wanting to go to class today or, you know, whatever. And they'd make little jokes and I would laugh. But I thought, you know, guys, that's not really funny. I, you know, I'm, I'm not making this up. And I did start to doubt myself whether these things were enough reason to have me calling out from either work or class or whatever, because it was just an ongoing joke, but it was hurtful. So Sarah, now let's, let's fast forward to the event you shared with us that happened when you were 25 years old and you had a number of different, very serious symptoms that made it so that you even had to be carried in and out of healthcare facilities. Do you recall having been bitten by a tick at any time just before that event when you turned 25? No, I actually don't recall having a tick bite that recently. So that I think was so shocking. And my alarm bells didn't go off for Lyme disease because I thought it had to be a tick and it had to be a bite right then and there. And I didn't have that. Were you doing anything such as doing regular tick checks at that time? Um, No, (laughs) to be honest, I wasn't. But my husband, he owns a construction company, and so he was constantly doing tick checks. So, you know, I started doing them here and there, but I wasn't as regular as I am now. (laughs) Now, As you sit here today, do you believe that the symptoms that took off when you were 25 were the consequence of a new tick bite and a reinfection, or do you believe that it was Lyme bacteria and other types of bacteria that you were harboring from prior tick bites that became opportunistic and took off when you were 25? Right. I think it was something that had been in my body for a long time, and it, it kind of came to be and got activated during that time. I was moving in with my boyfriend at the time. My job was really ramping up. So there definitely were stressors. I mean, good things, but definitely a lot of change. And I think it was once again, that perfect storm for the bacteria to kind of invade my body at that time. So I do think it was something I had for a while and especially the extent of my symptoms. And at that point already, I think that it was something that had been in my body for a very long time. So now you're having this horrific event where you're going to the hospital, you're going to, uh, you're going to other medical facilities, you're going back to the hospital, you're being carried in and out of facilities by, by your then boyfriend. What mm-hmm. impact was this illness having on you professionally? Meaning, was it having an impact on your ability to perform your duties at work? Oh, yeah. It was very evident when these things started happening. My job really worked with me, but... I, I mean, I couldn't eat when I ate food, it was coming out. I mean, either it was diarrhea or I was going to vomit and it would have been immediately. So, you know, I had tried going to work and then by lunchtime, I, I had to leave because I would immediately just get violently ill and it, you know, it's mortifying. These are your coworkers and you're spewing your lunch over onto their desk. I mean, it's not a great look. So There was that. And then again, I was having trouble mentally. I couldn't keep up. I couldn't remember things. I was having trouble managing tasks, managing people, always being so tired. I just, I couldn't do my job. And thankfully, my job had let me work from home a lot. But with what, you know, my job was, I I couldn't always work from home. And I ended up having to um, quit my job. And that was devastating you know, to, to my character, to my identity, because that's not something I ever thought I would have to do at that age. 
Now, what impact was your symptomology having on your, I guess it wasn't a new relationship, but certainly a new relationship yeah. where you're moving in now with your boyfriend? How, how is this impacting your relationship with your now living boyfriend? Oh my God. It was, I mean, it was awful. It was devastating because we're at this point too, where we don't know what's happening and why it's happening and what is causing this ramping up of symptoms. So I know we were both on edge and I know he was trying so hard to care for me, but I don't, he didn't know even what it was. So if you don't even know what it is, how do you know how to help? And I think that was really hard for us is, just having to constantly say, hun, I'm here for you. I'm sorry. But in the back of his mind, I know he's like, but what is this? I don't even, I don't even know how to wrap my brain around it because I couldn't even wrap my brain around it. So I couldn't even expect somebody else to understand what I was going through. So it was an emotional roller coaster for both of us in trying to figure out how to help somebody when they don't even know what's going on. Did you ever get the sense that your then boyfriend, now husband, was getting frustrated with your illness? You know, I think there were times where he was frustrated, but it was more so at the illness and not me. But I took it as he's frustrated with me. And I felt, I think there's a sense of guilt that I think a lot of chronically ill people feel for their condition, even though it's not their fault. But you, you kind of take on that burden. You identify with that illness. That illness is you and you are the illness. And therefore, when somebody's frustrated with the illness, you in turn see it as they're frustrated with you. And you kind of spiral into this emotional just depression. And I definitely identify with that. Most of the guests that we've talked to before you have shared with us that their romantic relationships have crashed during their Lyme journey. What types of things were you and your husband able to do that allowed your relationship to continue despite the challenges that you were facing with your illness? Right. So I think one of the main things is that we have been, we're high school sweethearts. So we've known each other for a long time and we know how to communicate with each other and we've been through ups and downs. So I think knowing that you have this strong friendship with this person and strong communication is super key. But also you have to have somebody that again is willing to go through the trenches with you. And, you know, he, he was willing, he was willing to put in the time, put in the work that this was going to take. And so thankfully, you know, he would, he would go to work and when he'd come home, he, it was all about me. You know, we would do, when I was able to, we would start going on walks together or we would, he would go take me to Starbucks and get coffee. It was those little things of knowing that somebody wanted to be there with you when you didn't even want to be with yourself. That was just huge for me. So Sarah, did you have any social relationships that you lost or were damaged as a consequence of the challenges that you were facing after your 25th birthday? Yes, I did. Unfortunately, I had friends, best friends, actually, who I thought, you know, there's nothing that could devastate this relationship. Absolutely nothing. And those were the people that I felt like I lost. And they, they saw me and thought, okay, well, she looks fine. She must be fine. So why is she blowing off all of our events? And the truth was that, you know, yeah, I, I looked okay. But that had no bearing on how I felt on the inside. I was just crying for help on the inside. And, you know, I had to go with my gut. And when I felt I was too tired to do something or it was going to hurt me the next day by doing an event, I just didn't do it. And people either understood or they didn't. And majority, unfortunately, didn't. And so I did lose a lot of friendships because, again, I, it's like the invisible illness. You look fine. Therefore, she just doesn't want to see me, so I'm going to stop inviting her. And that kind of is kind of what happened with me, unfortunately. Now, sorry, were there any new people that came into your life? Meaning, during the course of your journey, did you join any groups or did you come in contact with any people on social media that then became new friends that you didn't have before your illness? Yeah, actually, that, that did happen. Um, you know, I, again, I was an English major, and so I really wanted to start blogging about what was going on when we finally figured out what was happening to me, I felt such 
I was compelled to share my story because we had gone through so many ups and downs with this disease. And even again, just diagnosing that I felt I needed to share the story and in the hopes that it would just help maybe one person. And through sharing my journey and some very vulnerable moments in my life, I met such a great support system on social media, especially Instagram. I get so many direct messages and emails about people, you know, asking questions or saying, keep going, you're doing great. And that has been so inspiring. And they've kind of taken the place of some of those old friendships that you know, dwindled away. And even actually one of my now best friends, she really stepped up even more seeing that I was hurting so much. And regardless of whether she could see it on my face or not, she was there. And, you know, those friendships during the hardest points, those can sometimes be the strongest because they've weathered that storm. So I've made some really good friendships during this time. And I'm so thankful for this journey, actually, to bring me to those people. So Sarah, now we have this journey after you turn 25, where you're now going back to doctors, how long did it take before mm -hmm. you ultimately received a tick disease diagnosis? Uh, about two years. So yeah, it was a very long process, which I didn't think it would be, but I was misdiagnosed many times. So it took about two years. Sarah, can you talk to us more about your symptoms that you developed? I was having air hunger. So this feeling of not being able to get enough oxygen so you feel like you're suffocating. So I had that. I had heart palpitations. So again, my heartbeat would just increase to an astronomical rate for no apparent reason. I was ha having cognitive failure and impairment. So I would lose my vision at times. I was driving down the road one day and completely everything went black. I was having seizures, which would again land me in the hospital again. And at one point, I was unresponsive for a few hours. And my mom and my now husband thought I was actually dead at that point. I would have skin rashes. I would have swelling in my joints. I lost a lot of weight. I think I'm 5'7", so I was probably at most 90 pounds at one point. I, again, couldn't eat anything. I still have actually GI issues. And so, yeah, food, I've had to majorly, like, constrict my diet to very certain things. So it makes kind of going out to eat very difficult for me or going to friends' houses because if they don't have what I can eat, I just don't eat. So I've gone through, um, you know, burning and tingling throughout my body, Again, that fatigue, I still get random fevers. It's been a nightmare. I don't remember a lot of times my words or how to explain things. I would have to, it was almost like playing a, a game with, you know, charades with my husband. Like, you know, the thing you, you make a sandwich on and he goes, bread? And I'm like, yeah, that's it. So it was, it was really difficult to get through that. And over this two-year window of developing these worsening symptoms, what were your doctors saying? And did you see any specialists? And what were they saying? Yeah, so I, was, I saw at least 30 doctors. There are 30 doctors I can think of easily, so I'm sure there were more. But I got so many different diagnoses like hepatitis, gastritis, um, arthritis, all the rituses, chronic fatigue syndrome, pancreatitis. Uh, I even they thought I had lymphoma at one point because my lymph nodes in my neck have been so swollen from this process and they uh, had to remove some and said they were abnormal. So we were going through a stint of thinking I had lymphoma. My husband's calling, you know, cancer hotline and it, it's been a nightmare. So I've been misdiagnosed a slew of times. Sarah, when was the first time you thought Lyme could possibly be the cause of all of your symptoms? Actually, my mom was the first one, and she had been, you know, my whole family is trying to help figure out because they're seeing me go through this journey of doctor to doctor and nobody getting it right. So my family, you know, by proxy is becoming doctors of their own right. And, you know, they're doing all this research, and my mom goes, you know, something, I'm, I'm just reading all these stories, and it really seems like your, your stories, bits and pieces are fitting up with so-and-so's. And, you know, it took them forever to find that they had actually had Lyme after being misdiagnosed, just like I was, with some of the same um, diagnoses that I had. And so we're starting to think, you know, again, these things, what they're diagnosing me with, it didn't 
add up to being the cause of all of these symptoms. So, you know, finally I started thinking, you know what, would it kill me to go see uh, an LLMD, Lyme literate uh, doctor? And I thought, you know, no, I've seen over 30 at this point. Why not see, you know, 31? So that's when I kind of made that conscious decision to um, see a Lyme literate doctor. And what type of research did you do to identify what Lyme literate doctor you're going to see? So there were not very many at all. And you would think that living in Loudoun County there, I mean, well, it's now becoming more and more developed, but it was very rural for a while. So there were a lot of ticks, a lot of kids playing outside on many acres of land. So I would have thought there would have been more options, but there weren't. So there were only a handful at the time that I was seeing, but thankfully one that I found that had amazing reviews and people and like such great success stories was right in Washington, D.C. So I lucked out with that one. And what was this doctor's name that you decided to go see in the name of his clinic? Right. So I started seeing Dr. Joseph Jemsek at the Jemsek Specialty Clinic, again in D.C., and He was the first and only doctor who, again, I can truly say he saved my life. He took one look at me and knew instantly what was going on. Instead of people, I heard so many times saying, oh, that's interesting. I didn't want to be interesting. I wanted to be understood. And he never did that with me. He goes, I know exactly what's going on. Here's the care plan. He met with me extensively did so much more testing than I had, again, going to see 30 doctors, you would have thought I'd had it all, you know, the works done, but he did testing that no one else had done and just completely diagnosed me very quickly, very extensively and thoroughly and with such bedside manner. It was something I was not used to at all in this journey. Recently, Dr. Jemsek has been in the news and it's been acknowledged that he was improperly suspended by the North Carolina Medical Board. How do you feel about the only doctor that properly diagnosed you being suspended at one point and all the other doctors who you went to see who didn't diagnose you essentially going on with their business the way they had before? It feels so cheated, but it feels... It makes, unfortunately, more sense with how our medical community is right now, that decision to suspend him. It makes, it makes sense because, from my experience, no doctor believed in chronic Lyme. They said that was not a thing, that there's no way that that could be what's going on with you. you all you need is 30 days of doxycycline and you're going to be fine. Well, no, I wasn't fine. Doctor, I call him Dr. J. Dr. J was the only one who saw me for me. He saw, he listened, he heard me. And unfortunately, the medical community, in my opinion, doesn't value that. They don't value the information, unfortunately, that's right in front of their very eyes. It's only based on textbooks. Well, this doesn't match up with what I learned, so therefore it cannot be. Well, Lyme bacteria is like any other bacteria. It's going to evolve. It's going to get different and more pronounced as it gets, as, you know, the, the years go by. I mean, it's, again, it's just like any other disease. So why wouldn't Lyme change and manifest in different ways? And so I, I think that it's, it's very liberating for him to get that vindication. It's very needed. And I really hope that he can continue to do the amazing work that he's been doing. And so many of these other doctors who are supposed experts in their field can learn from him. Now, sorry, you've already demonstrated that you've changed in many ways as a consequence of this journey. And I'm wondering if you have a different opinion about the medical community now that you've gone through this journey than you did before you went on the journey. I do. And it's sad, unfortunately, because I've lost a lot of respect for the medical community and trust. You trust people. Again, you would take your computer to an IT expert, right? You trust them. But I don't feel like I can take my health to an expert and trust the care that I'm going to be given. And therefore, I don't, if I'm feeling something, I bypass any primary care doctor. I go straight to Dr. J because I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want to, I've been even criminalized. The doctors have told me I'm making this all up and have prescribed me antipsychotic medicine. So, you know, I don't want to go through that harassment. I don't, I don't want to go through the misdiagnoses. So therefore I just, I don't believe in even going to any other doctor anymore. And that's really sad. Sarah, it sounds like you had a classic neural Lyme symptomology 
and yet none of your doctors were able to even recognize that. So when you went to go see Dr. J, did he pick that up right away and clinically diagnose you with Lyme? Yes, he did. He did. He picked it up right away within my first consultation with him. He did test and immediately picked that up and knew exactly what to do, which again was a first for me. Aside from the clinical diagnosis, did he run any sort of lab work or blood work or tests that helped narrow down your diagnosis and potentially other co-infections or other things that were going along in your body with Lyme? Yes. So we did do some blood work as well as I also did stool tests. And in the blood work, it did show other tick-borne co-infections such as Rocky Mountain spotted fever and um, what is it, cat scratch fevers. So there were little things that turned up to uh, kind of point in the right direction as well. But again, he's done this for so long, he knew exactly what it was without me even having to, I mean, he just took a look at me and could see what was going on, which again was amazing because usually I was almost like, you know, this class clown coming in and people poking and prodding and thinking, huh, this girl's a quack. So it was, it was very refreshing. <laughs> from your perspective, after being misdiagnosed and bounced around from doctor to doctor over several years, did you believe him when he first diagnosed you clinically without any sort of fundamental evidence behind it that you had Lyme disease? There was something about him that I just felt in the right hand for the first time in this whole process. He, again, I, when people saw me, it was like, oh, that's weird, or oh, that's interesting. And never once did I get that kind of skepticism or, or odd intrigue, like I'm not quite sure what to do with her. I felt very at ease. And sometimes I think you just get this gut instinct that you're on the right track. And I think what he had described as my protocol and what we would be doing was very different than anything I had been through in the past and I'd gone through a slew of different treatments and so I think I was to that point where I I needed to believe in something because I was literally dying at this point and when you're that low it's like you want to cling on to anything at that point any sign of hope and he he was a sign of hope for me so I I pretty much believed him right off the bat and I'm so glad I did. Sarah, is there anything that you would recommend to people who are going on a diagnostic journey that you would have done differently that perhaps could have resulted in an earlier diagnosis? So, unfortunately, that many, you know, let's say at least 10, 12 years ago, there, I didn't know enough about Lyme, and therefore, I don't even think the medical community knew as much as it does now, even though we still have a long way to go, but I don't know if there was much I could have done if I would have maybe seen Dr. Jemsek back when I was, you know, 16. Yeah, maybe, but I unfortunately wouldn't trust a lot of the medical community to really help you on this one. Again, especially if you're battling chronic Lyme, I mean, unfortunately, it's kind of good luck and you're on your own unless you have a very experienced LLMD who knows the science, who knows what they're doing and has tried and true methods. Otherwise, you're going to go down the same, the same rabbit hole that I did, unfortunately. Sarah, how did Dr. Jemsek treat you when you first saw him? I had told him, he had asked, you know, we went through this whole extensive questionnaire and he'd asked what treatment methods I had tried before. And I had tried a slew of oral antibiotics, different Eastern medicine, Ayurvedic medicines. And so after going through that and knowing that those didn't work, because usually you don't go to an IV protocol right away. You know, you want to try the least invasive way first. And I'd already tried that. So his immediate response was, okay, we need to do IV therapy. You're the ideal candidate with the neurological symptoms that you're displaying. Even when I would talk to him, I just, I couldn't form proper sentences. I, my reflexes were extremely off. So immediately he thought, let's go to IV. We got to hit this hard because we've already, you know, wasted a lot of time and this has just progressed and progressed. So we went straight into IV therapy. Was that IV antibiotics? Yes. Was there anything else that he did with you aside from the IV antibiotics or was that the first thing that you did? So we, we did IV therapy coupled with oral antibiotics. We did oral herbs, CBD oil, probiotics, ozone therapy, infrared saunas. I kind of did everything, but with his protocol, it's, it's kind of rationed out each week. So 
each week you do kind of something different and you have on and off days. So it's not just you're hammering home, you know, straight IVs for four hours a day for an entire month. You know, each day you have kind of a different protocol based on your specific symptoms. So each day you're going to kind of be doing something different based on your chart and your protocol. What was it like when you first started your treatment, when you first received your first IV antibiotic treatment? How did you feel physically? Oh, gosh, I was so sick. <laughs> I, it, it's very rough on your body, I will say. And the, the nausea, the, the, oh, I had vomiting, diarrhea. I mean, I didn't respond very well. And I felt like I was kind of, I, I got a little sicker during my, quote, on weeks when I was doing my IV therapy. Because, again, I was doing it for about four hours each day that I had to do it. And it's, it's, takes a toll on your body. So you do need to pump a lot of probiotics. And I was getting um, IV nausea medication because I just couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I was extremely sick and very tired after my on days. It was brutal. And how did this progress over time? How long were you on the antibiotics for? And how did you feel as time went on? So I was, I had my IV port for about a year and a half, I want to say. And it took a while. And again, everybody sees progress differently. For me, unfortunately, it did take longer than usual. Usual, I think around six months, people start noticing um, a, a more drastic change, but I didn't. Um, so my progress took a lot longer, I think, again, with the extent of my symptoms and how long it had been, you know, kind of festering in my body. So I didn't start noticing a lot of relief until about the year mark, actually, is when I started really noticing improvement. What did it feel like having a pick line in? It sounds like you had this port put in, I believe, in your neck at first, and then it was moved to your, or your chest, I should say, and then it was moved to your arm after you had some issues with it. So what was that like walking around with this line into your heart? Yeah, that was, um, talk about a whole new brand of scrutiny. People looked at me. I could hear them talking about me. I, again, I felt like I'm just walking around buck naked. I mean, everybody's just kind of looking at you and you start to become very self-conscious. I mean, as if you weren't, weren't already, now you have this massive thing on your chest that nobody can really tell what it is. And so it just sparks a lot of talk. And I had random people ask what is going on and, and, oh, I'll pray for you. So it, it, it definitely made me more self-conscious, but actually it was one of the things that by being so self-conscious, it helped me to work through some lacking of self-confidence that I had throughout this journey. So it actually pushed me to be like, you know what, screw what anybody else thinks, you know, this is helping me. This is what I need. I don't care. And, and I kind of moved past it, but it was definitely shell shock in the beginning. So now you've been diagnosed and been treating Lyme for about a year and a half now. Are you still on IV antibiotics today or did you stop that antibiotic treatment and move on to something else? So yeah, I stopped. Thank the Lord. I had it in my chest and then it became infected. So I had to get it um, uh, an emergency surgery to move it to my arm, but it stopped. I got my pore taken out. I believe it was in la this past August in 2019, the end of August. And so I'm now on oral antibiotics, but my protocol is significantly reduced. I used to have a grocery bag full of pills that I had to take, but now it's definitely, it's definitely lower. And I will hopefully be going into remission, the remission phase in April. Out of all the things you did aside from the antibiotics, which really helped kill the Lyme bacteria and all this other bacteria in your body, what was the best thing you did to help give you some symptom relief? I think that, so infrared was good, but for me, when I had the air hunger really bad, even being in that enclosed space was a lot for me. And I, I, felt, I felt a little anxiety and panicky, but I will say that sweating and re releasing toxins is obviously one of the best things you can do. So if there's any way to kind of help your body, help your immune system, so by sweating, or if you can maybe even, you know, walk on a treadmill or being a little bit active. I know some days there are, you just cannot physically get out of bed. Don't let anybody tell you differently. If you can't do it, you can't do it. But if you can, I highly recommend 
sweating just a little bit, getting moving just a little bit, because that sense of normalcy is is so important. And I think keeping your emotional state and mental state, keeping that in a good place is so key, because once you fall down that hole of feeling kind of this victim, or I can't do this, or I'm never going to be normal again, can actually make your symptoms that much more worse or that much more real to you. So doing things like yoga or, again, something that can kind of keep you active. I will also say ozone therapy, again, for certain people, it is really good. And that could be something super key, but you really do need to consult with your doctor because some of these techniques that have worked for me would not be recommended depending on your symptoms. So really seeking that LLMD, somebody who's very knowledge and can talk you about talk to you about what is good for your particular symptoms is key. Sarah, you mentioned in the beginning of the episode that you're now returning to work part-time and you've made some major progress with your health. So can you give us an assessment of how you're feeling today and where you feel you are with your recovery? Yes. So this has been so exciting for me. I've never been so excited to get up and be able to go to work ever in my entire life. I'm finally finding kind of a piece within myself about who I am, where I'm at. I've struggled for a very long time during this journey about not feeling enough, not wearing, not being where I thought I would be at this age, not having the things I thought I would, not being able to do the things I thought I'd be able to do. I kind of, I think, based a lot of my identity in the things I did and what I had. And when that all got taken away, I struggled to see who the real Sarah was. What, who is she? What, what is she good for? Is she enough for, you know, this life? And and that was really hard. So Again, identifying in things is never a good idea because those things can be taken from you in a second, believe me. So being at this place and point in my life, being able to go back to work, I feel liberated. It's exciting. I have, I'm I'm feeling more energized these days. I'm definitely still fatigued and winter is still definitely a, a tougher time for me. I do use like a heat lamp, which is starting to help actually a little bit. But it is an emotional roller coaster. Your healing journey, it's not going to always be up, 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 up. You know, there are going to definitely be some down points. But I'm able to go to the gym each day. So I'm not running yet, which I used to do, but I am walking. So, you know, it's a step in the right direction. I'm able to remember things more clearly. I feel like I'm able to multitask a little bit more. I'm able to see my friends and kind of get out. Doesn't mean you're not going to have bad days, but they're, they are less frequently than they used to be. So it's, it's a really amazing feeling to know where I was and to know where I am now. It's truly exciting. Can you share with us what type of a transformation your Lyme journey has been for you and how are you better as a consequence of having gone on this journey? Right. It's so crazy because I never would have thought this could bring anything good to my life. You know, you just see yourself again in this hole that you're just constantly going deeper and deeper and, you know, getting back to that surface is just never going to be feasible again after everything you've gone through. But there is a light and it's the most beautiful thing when you finally wake up one day and realize that you went through hell just to be able to get back up and know that I did that and look where I'm at now. Look at me. Look, I am taking a breath. I am going on the treadmill. I'm going, I'm able to drive to the grocery store. It's those little things that I am so thankful for. And I don't think I'll ever take that for granted again. I feel I have so much more appreciation and the people that have stayed around for this journey, the people that have been through this with me, it is so hard for us being sick, but it is also so hard for your support system to be around you. And it's not a bad thing, but they, a lot of people, I didn't even know what this journey would look like. I, I had no clue the things that I know now. So expecting somebody to be able to support you when, again, you don't even understand fully what is going on is, is truly beautiful. And to, to feel the confidence in myself that I have in my voice and my experience and to know that I am enough. I am enough to 
to live the life that I want to live, to to work and build this career that I deserve, to have the love and support of a husband that I deserve. All of these things, it it is so beautiful. And again, there's an appreciation when your life is on the line that you then have moving forward in your life. That is something I don't think I would have ever in a million years felt had I not gone through this journey. And again, I never thought I would say this. I am so thankful I went through that. I'm getting a little teary as I think about it. I am so thankful for the worst of my worst days because it makes these days today so much more beautiful and there's so much more light in me and and so much more I have to give than I ever would have realized had I not gone through this. If God forbid tomorrow your husband was outside and he came in and he told you that he found a tick biting him on his leg, what advice would you give to him so that he wouldn't have to go through the terrible journey you had to go through? Well, I'd kick him out and I wouldn't deal with it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I would I would immediately, again, call Dr. J because he's the only doctor, again, unfortunately, that I trust. I would have him bring in the tick and we would immediately see what he has to say, get testing done and take preventative measures such as potentially oral antibiotics, immune boosting protocols, things like that. Again, whatever Dr. J says, I basically would go with. But I also didn't realize that Lyme can be sexually transmitted. So even if somebody hasn't been bit by a tick, I mean, it's something that you still need to be aware of if you are you know, sexually active with your partner that it, it might be something that you need to speak with your, your LLMD as well as your significant other and potentially get them in testing or, or, or do something that you can kind of watch and see and, and kind of keep that in mind when you are, you know, again, intimate with somebody because that's something that I also didn't know. So it's not just if you see a tick bite, it's there are other ways to, to get to contract this disease. So just be cautious. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Sarah Hot. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Sarah Hot, please visit her Instagram at Closet Confidential Blog. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.